0: Good evening everybody. Thank you as always for being part of our class tonight. I as always I hope that I got the live stream set up well so if you're watching online welcome to you as well Uh, but as always I know that you have a busy a busy life and a lot going on in the middle of the week and it's a big deal to stop and take time out to uh, to study scripture and to be with your brothers and sisters so thank you thank you so very much for making time in your life and your week to do that so let's go ahead and start with the prayer. Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful to have time where we can stop and pause, reflect on the story that we are a part of, uh, reflect on the blessings that you have bestowed on us, reflect, Father, on the warnings that we have in these stories and these accounts of, of your people and where they've been and what they've done and how you have loved them and strove with them. And Father, we pray for your patience and your mercy and your grace. We pray, Father, that you help us to learn from the people who went before us. Help us, Father, to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, help us to love you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And help us, Father, to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's uh, very quickly review our our 11 points of our overview of the Old Testament. I'm not going to put them up there. I'll do what we did last week and see if you can remember all 11 of them. What is the first one? Chosen, right? That God chose Abraham. You could say that God chose a people. You could say that he chose a specific descendant of Abraham. But what was his what was his point? And I always want to come back to that overarching idea because that's one of the primary themes, if not the primary theme of Scripture, what was the point in having a chosen people? Because maybe especially to our modern ears, that sounds rather exclusionary, doesn't it? Exclusive. Who is God to have a chosen people? Well, first of all, He's God. He can do whatever He wants to. So if He wants to have a chosen special people, He can have a chosen special people. But before anybody gets their feelings hurt about God having a chosen and special people, what was the point? Of having a chosen and special people. Okay, for the Messiah to come. And through the Messiah, what? Salvation Salvation for all people. So that the blessings would be for all the nations. And from the very beginning, God always said that, didn't he? He always said that that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to (laughs) all the nations of mankind. So for anybody... For anybody, whether that's the people who are ethnically God's chosen people, ethnically Jewish, or for those who think that they're smarter than anybody else or more uh, clever than anyone else or more speaking than anyone else, for anybody to think that they have the market cornered on God's blessings, and these are just for me and people exactly like me, we ought to go back to the beginning of the story and remember that this was always, always that God would have a Multi ethnic, multilingual, multinational family. It was never for one specific group of people, but that through that group of people, and we would say specifically through the person of Jesus, the blessings of, of God would come to all nations of mankind. So God chose Abraham, and we saw as God chose Abraham, and then that promise was continued to be passed down generation after generation through the patriarchs the next period of history is what chosen and then liberated right they ended up in in egypt in slavery and god liberated them he rescued them he redeemed them from egyptian slavery and he brought them out of of egypt they came into the wilderness. God gave them the law and the promises and the, the covenant he made. It was kind of like a wedding ceremony with God and his people. And from that moment on, they were faithful and in love with God. And every, they lived happily ever after, right? Was that, uh, yeah, we wish, we wish that's how, how this story worked. But it didn't, it didn't work that way. So God made covenant with the people at Sinai. And then they marched on to the promised land. And did they go in? No, they didn't go in. Why? They wandered. They, they wandered. they wandered for 40 years until that generation passed away and a new generation came. And then finally, they're given the law a second time. What book is that? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, they're given this, the law a second time and they finally go in and we call that period victory or victorious, right? So the victorious period of time. So they go in, they conquer the land, the period of conquest, Joshua leads them in and they begin to conquer the promised land. Of course, they don't conquer everything. We're hopeful that they will continue to do that and to walk in God's ways. Of course, they don't. They don't do that. And because they don't do that, it's a period of lawlessness, right? They're lawless and they, they rebel against God. God allows them to be oppressed. And then he rescues them, redeems them through the hand of a judge. So this is the period of the judges, and then they're they're rescued from that. But finally, eventually, they want a, a king, and they get a king, and through their king, they are ruled, right? They're ruled by this king, and the king was Saul, right? King Saul, and you would think, oh, they've learned their lesson. They'll never go back that way again. They never want a, a king like all the other kings because the next king, that it's a period of United, right? It's a united the David unites the the tribes of Israel, sort of a time of peace, a time of, of blessings. And then right after David comes Solomon. And in the beginning, Solomon starts off so great, right? He asks for wisdom. He wants to be wise so that he could rule God's people. God gives him wisdom. It doesn't take very long. We talked about this last week. He starts to pursue all the things that God told him not to. Sort of the forbidden fruit for kings. And what was the forbidden fruit for kings? Horses. Specifically horses from Egypt, right? What else? Money. Yeah, gold. Lots of gold. And wives. And Solomon did all of it, right? Just like all the other kings. And so Solomon went the way of all the other kings. And then the nation was, quickly after Solomon, the nation was, divided, right? So we have this period of division where we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So we talked about last week. So we have this period of division, but we know what comes next, right? Even though we haven't gotten here yet, it's divided and then exile. So Assyria comes in, wipes out the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Babylon comes in 130 years later or so, wipes out the southern kingdom of Judah, carries them off into captivity. They spend, you know, some of them never come back. We'll talk about that tonight. Uh, But eventually there's a period of, after the exile returned, right? So they come back to the promised land. So there's a return specifically to Jerusalem, a rebuilding. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. So they returned, but even after they've returned, it's, it's still not, it's not what it was supposed to be. It's not what God promised someday it would be. And it's not even what it used to be. It's not even as good as it used to be. And so there's this period of waiting, right? This period of waiting. And eventually, we know, end of the, 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 the beginning of the end of the story is the Messiah comes, right? So Jesus comes and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that waiting, all of that hopes, all of those hopes, all of those promises. So there's the outline, if you haven't gotten it by now. Uh, there's the outline. Um, so... Tonight, I want to start where we left off last week. I had way too much last week. I went too fast. I didn't even get done with all of the things I wanted to get through. So tonight, I want to go back to where we were, and I want to add a picture to the the last phrase that was on the slide. The last phrase was, for centuries, the prophets warned the rebellious, they warned the rebellious, and they comforted the remnant that God's righteous justice is coming. Now, again, God's righteous judgment is coming. Is that, a, is that a phrase of good news or bad news? It's good news, right? It's good news, but what did you say? It depends on who you are. Whether you receive that as good news or you receive that as bad news, whether you receive that as a warning or you receive that as comfort depends on whether or not you are the remnant or whether you are the rebellious. If you're rebellious, you don't want to hear about God's judgment. But what did the rebellious do when the prophets warned the judgment of God is coming? Well, you They got some new prophets, oh, yeah, they some new prophets. They some that's right. They, they closed their ears, right? They didn't listen to them. They, they, they killed <laughs> them. They murdered the prophets that told the truth. They threw them into prison. They, they pushed them out of the community. They don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Who wants to hear that kind of stuff? Your nation is going to fall? And especially when you're, when you're the kingdom of God, when you're God's people, the, the group to whom he's made all of these promises, they don't want to hear that. And so they push the, the true prophets away. And of course there was always, they were a dime, of, a, dime a dozen, the, the false prophets who would give them all kinds of false hope. And really here's something to kind of just stick in your hat, just a, a, a thought about prophets. We tend to think about prophets as predicting the future. And that was part of what the prophets did. They, they brought a message from God and often it was about the future, but very often it was about the present. And it was the interpretation of present circumstances by revelation from God. Now, there's all kinds of ways that people interpret present circumstances. We have all kinds of present day would-be prophets, don't we, who who try to look at the present circumstances and say, well, you know, let me tell you why all this bad stuff is happening. All this bad stuff is happening because of those people, or all this bad stuff is happening because of those people. All this bad stuff, it's eventually going to lead to this, or it's eventually going to lead to that, and we all sort of pick our prophets that we think, oh yeah, yeah, they're telling the truth, they're telling the truth. We all sort of have itching ears that, that we love to hear people that, that speak the truth we agree to. Nobody wants a prophet to come along and say, whoa, 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 this, everything right now seems comfortable, but you shouldn't interpret it as comfortable. God's judgment is coming. Come on, if we're comfortable right now. Don't say that. Nobody wants to hear that. And nobody wants to hear when bad things are happening, it's your fault. You did this. It's easy for a prophet to say, well, it's those Assyrians. You know those Assyrians. They're a horrible people. It's those Babylonians. It's the, they're the problem. It's those Egyptians. They're the problem. People like prophets like that. They don't like prophets to come along and say, no, it's you. You're the problem. And if you don't change, we are going to be wiped off the map. We're going to be carried off into exile. Some of the prophets even came along and said, it's too late. It's done. Just get with the program. Just go along with it. You need to just surrender. The enemies are coming. And when they get here, turn yourself over to them because this is from God. And if you fight it, it's gonna be even worse for you. Nobody wants to listen to a prophet like that, do they? I mean, I, it gives me chills to think of. I mean, literally, I have chills running down my arms thinking about that. That if somebody told you that, don't fight them. If you fight them, it's only gonna make it worse. God sent them to punish us. Nobody wants to listen to prophets like that. So from the beginning to the end, the prophets that warned and warned and warned, the vast majority of people did not listen to them. Of course, there was always a remnant of people. There were always a group of faithful people who listened to the prophets of God, who waited, who were righteous, who did what was just and good. But most of those people were not powerful. They were not rich. They were oppressed. They were taken advantage of and nobody listened to them either, right? And so all of their hope was in what God will do, that God will surely keep his promises. And most of those people throughout the history of God's people, most of those people are people you've never heard of. You don't know their names. You don't know their stories. But they were faithful to God, and they died waiting. And they're still waiting. And Jesus is coming, and he will fulfill all of God's promises for them. That's a day of victory, not just for you, that's part of it, but for them, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of God's faithful remnant. So I want you to think about this mountain range. I know, sorry, everybody can't see it, but you've seen a mountain range before if you can't see the screen. Um, So you've probably, although we don't have many of those anywhere near here, but you've probably been somewhere where you've been driving along. I grew up in Northwest Kansas, and if you've ever been to Northwest Kansas and driven I-70 towards Colorado eventually takes a long time. Most of Colorado, believe it or not, is flat and ugly, just like Northwest Kansas. (laughs) I can say that because I'm from Northwest Kansas. So when you're driving across Eastern Colorado, it is just barren wasteland until you get right to the edge of the Rocky Mountains. I always said that there's a reason that Denver is right there because people coming out there in covered wagons were like, well, this is as far as I go. I'm not going over those things, you know, and they just stop. But when you're, when you're driving out on I-70 and you see this mountain range, from a distance, and all mountain ranges are this way, from a distance, it's all just one big thing, right? It's just this big mass. And so you could describe the mountain range as, as, a, as a two-dimensional thing, as a singular thing. It's just this future thing. I'm headed towards that, that thing, you see that thing off in the distance, that's what I'm headed to. And when you read the prophets, a lot of scholars compare the prophets to to that sort of a description, where the prophets are saying, God's justice, it's coming. This beautiful paradise, it's coming. The horrible punishment for the rebellious, it's coming. And it's all just this, this future flattened out thing. Now, As you get closer and closer and closer to the mountains, in fact, if you start driving up in the foothills of the mountains, you realize it's not just one flat thing. This is actually hundreds of peaks, hundreds and hundreds of peaks. And between the peaks, there may be be miles and miles and miles of valleys between the peaks. In fact, there may be a peak and then a, a, a valley and then another peak. Before the other valley and the peak you saw, you didn't even see that middle peak before. There's all kinds of terrain in between those peaks. You you see what I'm saying? And the prophets are like that. And so as you start to experience the the things that the prophets said were coming, it's not about chronology. And and really it's not about, well, what's, is it gonna be this and then this? Well, so many of these things transpired hundreds, sometimes thousands of years away from one another. But if you just listen to the prophets, it it sounded like it was one big thing. Were they wrong? Did they lie? Well, of course not. It's true. It it was all in the future. But right now, we're sort of in the mountains right now. We've passed many of those peaks. So depending on which prophet you're reading, you may be reading from a prophet who says, listen, listen, listen. We're going to be carried off into exile. Assyria is going to destroy us. Okay, well, that's probably a, a northern kingdom prophet, right? Before Assyria, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom. Okay, so that peak is still in the future. And then they may even talk about the Messiah. Oh, wait a second. Is the Messiah going to come right about the same time of the Assyrian destruction? Well, no. But they may even talk about the return to Jerusalem. Wait, is the return to Jerusalem going to happen? You see, it, it's all just this future reality that's all coming, but they weren't concerned with chronology. They weren't concerned with what's bigger than the other. It's just all out there. Because for a lot of the people to whom they were speaking and writing, it really wasn't going to matter for them anyway, was it? Other than the Messiah is going to take care of you and you're going to experience the promises of God. And the way things are now are not the way it's always going to be. And there's a great deal of hope in that, isn't there? These enemies that seem so big and these unrighteous people that are taking advantage of and oppressing and there's so much injustice, it's not always gonna be like this. God is gonna take care of all of these things and it's a mountain range that's out there in the future. But then as you get closer and closer, you, you start to experience, oh, that, that mountain range we passed back there, that was one of the things the prophets were talking about. And, and we're standing on another one, and there's still another one in the future. That's where we are right now. And so as we think about this idea that the prophets <laughs> warned the rebellious and comforted the remnant that God's righteous justice is coming, the destruction of Samaria in Israel was part of that. The destruction of Jerusalem in Judah was part of that. The return of the exiles was part of that the first advent or the first coming of the Messiah is part of that. The second coming of the Messiah is part of that. So don't be surprised when you read the prophets and you're like, it's all just kind of jumbled up in there. Well, of course it is. It was hundreds and thousands, even thousands of years in the future. So of course the prophets just described it as this beautiful picture for the remnant of what is to come. This future reality is coming and, and now as those of us who are reading it and still drawing encouragement from it, there's so much we can still draw from it, right? One in that we could say, praise God, the justice of God came. Praise God, the justice of God is here. Praise God, the justice of God is still coming. And that the day where God swallows up death forever, the day where everybody can sit under their own vine and their own fig tree and have perfect peace, the day when, when babies will play over the venomous snake's hole, those days are still coming. All of these promises, all of them are coming true in Jesus. They're all coming true in Jesus. So for us to say Jesus fulfills all of these things is true but we can't go so far, I don't think, as to say Jesus has already fulfilled all these things as if all the prophecies that the prophets laid out have already come to pass because there's so much of this that you read it and you think, oh, okay, okay, like perfect, like the land is gonna be perfect and the, the glory and name of God is gonna cover the earth like the sea, the waters cover the seas. And you think, well, did that happen when they returned from exile? Kind of, yeah. Did that happen when Jesus showed up? Kind of, yeah. But am I still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of that? You better believe it. And so when you read people like Paul and Peter, they're still longing. They're saying, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophetic hopes, but they're still longing. Peter says, We're still looking forward to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where did he get that idea? Isaiah, Isaiah. They drew all of this hope from the prophets and that they understand that Jesus is the one on whom all of these prophetic hopes and promises converge. All of these hopes and promises of the Old Testament prophets, they all converge on Jesus And we're still looking forward to. So when you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and you read these beautiful pictures, the way that scholars like to talk about it is the kingdom is already. Jesus said that, right? It's already, but it's still, there's a sense in which it's not yet. So there's this already and not yet sense to the kingdom of God. Okay, we've been talking a lot about the story of Samuel Kings. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings all sort of one collection of scrolls. So Samuel Kings tells this continual story. And we've said this before, but only briefly. What's the point? What's the point of the Samuel Kings story? How does it end? How does Samuel Kings end? What's that? Exile. Yes, they're in exile. So why write a story like that? Who who writes a story like that? Who writes this story of, well, you see, here's the thing. We asked for a king. We got one. He wasn't real great. We got another one. He was pretty good. And then it all just kind of fell apart from there. And here we are in exile. Here we are in exile. To this day, here we are in exile. Why write a story like that? The mountain range. The prophetic mountain range. To, to teach the people, here's how we got here. And the Davidic promises, the promises of a Davidic king are going to get us home. They're going to get us home. And we don't know when we're going to go there. and We don't know what it's going to look like, but God will keep his promises to us. But it's important for us, while we remain in exile, for us to remember how we got here, why we're here in the first place, and who is going to take us home. To, to experience repentance and restoration Okay, so so kind of think about that, but then kind of transition and, and ask yourself this question. As the people went into the promised land initially, we said, what was the second giving of the law? Deuteronomy, right? So they got Deuteronomy to tell them, this is how you behave in the in the land. As God's people, here's how you behave in the land. Are they in the land anymore? No. Now, Israel has been destroyed by Assyria. Those tribes have been scattered. The Assyrians even sent other people in to intermarry with the people in in Israel. And they kind of, initially there were lions. (laughs) And so the Assyrians were like, we don't know, like that that God is really mad at those people. And so you probably need to have like a priest that belongs to Israel, like teach them how to live because People keep getting eaten by lions, so like send somebody in there. And so they try to kind of have this hybrid, like you can have your idols and some of that pagan stuff, but you also need to worship Yahweh and have some of that. And so that became what people? The Samaritan people, eventually the Samaritan people, Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. So Israel is gone. They're really not in the picture anymore. And then the Southern Kingdom of Judah for a while, for a hundred years, they were like, ha, yeah, stinks to be all, but we're good. You know, we've got we've got the the line of David, we've got the temple, we're God's favorite, you know, we're the tribe, we we've got all the promises, it's all about us, we're good. <laughs> Nothing like that. Whatever happened to us. And the prophets kept saying, Oh, don't be so sure, it's coming for you too. This punishment is coming for you too. And so eventually Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, comes in and wave after wave they carry the people off into exile eventually come back and just entirely decimate the city of Jerusalem it's gone i can't even i can't even imagine i mean i know how we probably whether you want to or not probably feel that kind of instinctual tie to places like washington dc and our monuments there they're not sacred sorry they're not sacred not like the temple of god was sacred this was sacred God chose this place to be his special dwelling place and set it apart above all the other places on the face of the earth. And the Babylonians, these pagans came in and decimated it. Can you imagine watching it burn? I can't. I can't even imagine the way that would feel. And to know if you knew this was our fault. We brought this on ourselves. We brought this on us. And so the people are scattered, some people flee to Egypt, some people just never come back. We have the Jewish diaspora. We still, to this day, call it that the Jewish diaspora where the, the people were exiled all over the world. And many of them were exiled to Babylon. Of course, they took them initially to Babylon to sort of re-educate them, sort of take them through their propaganda and you know, reshape them and form them into Babylonian people who thought like Babylonians, who worshiped like Babylonians. Who were some of the first people that that happened to? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are actually their Babylonian names. All but Daniel, um, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are their Hebrew names. They got new names. Belteshazzar became D- Daniel's name. They got new names because they wanted to totally reshape them. Right. So, how do you how do you live? How do you live in in a different place? The law of Moses was tied very specifically to that place. Come to this place. Worship at this place. Offer these sacrifices in this place. If you're living as exiles in Babylon, you don't have a temple. You don't have priests to offer your sacrifices. You don't have I mean, it's not like you can be real picky and choosy with what kind of meat. Oh, I'm sorry, I only eat kosher. Like, I mean, that, that doesn't work in Babylon. It, when you're living in Israel, that works. It works to keep the Sabbath. It works to have your scriptures. It works to do all of this thing because you're, you're in kind of a little bubble. But now you're scattered to the wind and now you're living in, in Babylon. How do, you, how do you live a faithful life there? And so that's why we have books like this. Daniel prophesied probably from about 605 to 520 BC, just to kind of give you an idea how far ahead of Jesus that is. So about 600 years before Jesus. So Daniel is one of the, he and his friends, probably because they're young royalty, probably teenagers uh, from royal families, taken to Babylon to go through a re-education camp. And they get there What are some of the stories that we read about Daniel while he's exiled in Babylon? What's one of the first stories we read? It's actually about food, right? Absolutely. Eat eat the king's best food, best food. Why can't Daniel and his friends do that? The food was not pure for them. Absolutely. This is not meat that we can eat. And so they eat only vegetables, and God provides for them. Who does, from the very beginning, who does Daniel's story remind you of? Joseph's story a lot, doesn't it? He's he's sort of exiled in Egypt. So you see a lot of echoes between Daniel and Joseph. And so God watches over and causes Joseph to prosper even while he's in a foreign land. And and Daniel has the same sort of experience. What what is this teaching us? One, God hasn't abandoned his people. And there's still a way to be faithful, even in Babylon. And these, these these are people that have been brought into the Babylonian court. <laughs> like their names have been changed. They're wearing Babylonian clothes, but yet they're still finding a way to be faithful to God in the middle of a pagan empire, in, the, in, in royal roles as, as overseers in, in, the, in the inner workings of Babylon. They're still finding ways to be faithful. So we have Daniel and his friends for uh, refusing to eat the meat, Um, refusing to bow down to the golden image. His friends get tossed into the fiery furnace. God protects them. Of course, they say, whether whether God protects us or not, it doesn't matter. We're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Again, these stories are not just to tell us what happened. They were to shape exiles. This is how you live as exiles. They may hate you. They may despise you. They may make laws against you. They may throw you into a fiery furnace. Be faithful. Be faithful. You say, well, oh yeah, well, most of the people God didn't bring out of the fiery furnace. You know what I'd say? Not yet, but he will. And every one of God's faithful people will walk out unscathed, alive from the tombs. Every single last one of them, including you. And so we have these stories to teach Exiled people, this is how you live as God's people when you're not at home, when you feel like a stranger, when you don't fit in, when you're rejected, when it doesn't work seemingly to live God's way in the middle of this. Ever felt that way? How can I do it here? How can I live the right way here? Read Daniel. Daniel teaches you exactly what it looks like to live as God's people in the midst of a hostile nation. Of course, they pass a law that says nobody can pray to anybody except the king. Daniel does it anyway. He gets thrown to the lions. God protects him again. Um, He interprets dreams and, and his dreams. That's kind of the part of Daniel we skip over a lot, but there's so much there about this future mountain range. Daniel sees visions and and interprets dreams about how there are going to be other beasts. What do the beasts represent? Kingdoms, right? These other kingdoms. There's going to be Babylon. And we can kind of look back and say, well, that was Greece and that was Rome. And there's all of these other beasts. But there's other beasts, right? Nazi Germany. I don't know. Like, I mean, there's been all kinds of beasts. In In a sense, every worldly kingdom, every worldly kingdom, is a beast, is a monster. And then Daniel sees this vision and over and over again, things like this. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. So he sees this man, this human coming up to the father, to Yahweh, And was presented before him. And to him, that son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You think that that would fill you with hope in the midst of exile? I hope so. Daniel sometimes didn't know what to do with that. But I hope we do. (coughs) That, That... hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, 600 years before Jesus, God's people were getting this message that one day a human being will be raised up. Of course, he's more than a human being, but he is that too, raised up to sit at the right hand of the ancient of days. And he's going to be given rulership over all the nations of the world. Now, again... (laughs) I mean, if you had read this, like if you had looked in at some of these stories and you had been a Babylonian, I mean, it would have been laughable, wouldn't it? <laughs> who, do you, who do you people think you are? Your God? Your, we stomped all over your God. Don't you remember? We, we stomped all over your God. We stole all of his stuff. We're having parties out of his Tupperware. We're, we stole all. We, your God is nothing. Your people are just scum between our toes. And you really think that uh, someone that your God anoints is going to rule over all the nations of the world? Absolutely. And that's exactly what's happened. It's exactly what's happened. And hundreds of years before Jesus, there was this vision that one day there would be an ascension to the father's right hand of a son of man who would rule over all the nations. You have other prophets during that time, like Jeremiah, uh, about the same time period. So Jeremiah, of course, was in Jerusalem and warning people and warning people and warning people. And of course, nobody wants to listen to somebody who says, hey, when the bad guys get here, just give yourself up because God's going to punish us and you're just going to make it worse. And so they threw Jeremiah in a pit and they they hated him and they didn't want to listen to him and he warned them that this was going to happen, and of course it did happen, and Nebuchadnezzar starts carrying people off to Babylon, and of course there's still false prophets. There's always people that are looking to make a buck, telling somebody something that they want to hear, right? And so there were these false prophets that said, listen, this is just a bump in the road. Don't worry about it. This isn't going to last long. Don't, Don't settle in. Don't worry about it. You're going to come home. You're going to come home. Just Just kind of hang out in Babylon for a little bit, but you're going to come back home before you know it. And Jeremiah wrote him a letter and said, no, don't listen to it. It's a lie. Settle in. You're going to be here a while. You're familiar probably with some of Jeremiah's letter. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives And have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. That's not what you want to hear, is it? It's not. I mean, if you went on vacation to Florida and you weren't liking it, I'm sorry. I'm no offense against Florida. If you went on vacation somewhere, wherever, and you weren't liking it and somebody said, build a house, you would think, I'm not building a house here. I'm only here for a few months. I'm not building a house. You're going to be a while you know, your daughter who's just a baby, you're going to be giving her in marriage before you know it. And you're still going to be here. You're going to be here for more than your generation. You're going to live here and you're going to die here. This is it. You will never see Jerusalem again. Remember that generation who died off in the wilderness after 40 years? It's going to be longer than that. Settle in. You're going to be here for a while. Verse seven, but Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Nobody likes to hear that. (laughs) Can Can you imagine? I mean, I threw out Nazi Germany earlier. Fill in the blank with whoever you want to fill in. Think about a group of people you can't imagine dragging you out of your home sometimes at the worst of it, putting hooks in you, dragging you across the country to a new place. And you're sitting there by the river, weeping and gnashing your teeth. And this prophet writes you a letter and says, build a house and get ready to spend the rest of your life here. And while you're here, seek the welfare of this city. You don't live in Jerusalem anymore. You live in Babylon. Take good care of it. Bless this place because as you bless this place, as you are a blessing to this place, as you seek the welfare of this city, you also will benefit from doing so because this is going to be your home for a while. Verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and don't listen to the dreams that they dream for it's a lie that they have prophesied to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, if you're 30 or 40 or 50 and somebody says to you, don't worry, 70 years, we'll start coming back. Start coming back. How do you feel about that? I mean, good for my kids and grandkids, I guess. Maybe if they're part of the lucky group that gets to go back, it's going to be a very, very long time. But God says to them, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now we have, whoa, we've just watered that phrase down so much, haven't we? He's not talking to any one individual. He's saying, I have plans for Israel. I have plans for Judah. I have plans for Jerusalem. I have plans for the Jewish people. I will bless you. I haven't given up on you. I'm still your God. You're still my people. I still have a plan that I'm going to fulfill through you. You're still going home. This this isn't ending here. Keep your faith. Keep your hope. Keep your identity. Keep your eyes on God. And and the remnant of people like Daniel, they remained faithful to God. They even prayed towards Jerusalem. They still knew where their home was, right? They still knew where their home was. They knew Babylon's not home, home, home. I may never get to set my eyes on Jerusalem again, but this really isn't home. But while I'm here, I'm gonna seek the welfare of this city. I will not hate these people and I will not hate this place and I will not be resentful and I will not be bitter because God brought me here and God will take my people home. God still has a plan for us. See, this is the the way that God teaches his people to be exiles in the world. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God keeps his promises. And he tells them, in the meantime, do two things. Seek the welfare of the city and seek me with all your heart. It really hasn't changed that much since Deuteronomy, has it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Yep, even your Babylonian neighbor. Don't try to take over Babylon. Don't try to make Babylon Jerusalem 2.0. This isn't really home, but you're going to be here for a while. And while you're here, seek their welfare. Love them and love me, love God. Seek me with all your heart. Exiles typically do one of two things. Either they assimilate, right? They assimilate, which is what the Babylonians were hoping that they would do. The Babylonians wanted them to assimilate, to become Babylonian to adopt Babylonian culture, Babylonian language, especially Babylonian worship, Babylonian faith, bow to our statues, worship our gods, be one of us. And it's really easy to, not, not easy, but in some ways it resolves the tension. If you are an immigrant, if you are in exile, if you don't, especially if you don't have a home anymore, to just assimilate to wherever you are and just become like everybody else. Don't stand out don't be different, don't be weird, don't be strange, just be like everyone else. Or you either assimilate or you isolate. And you say, we're gonna live over here in a separate part of town, we're gonna build really tall walls, we're gonna keep all the rest of you away from us because you're dirty and bad and you're no good. God doesn't want us loving you or helping you or being part of you. God wants us to be separate and set apart and over here and you're over there. That, that, people that are exiles tend to do one of those two things either assimilate or isolate, but God calls them to live in this weird other way that is totally unnatural. It doesn't come natural to exiled people. It doesn't come naturally to you as Christian exiles. God taught the Babylonian exiles another way, to be loving and cooperative, right? Seek the welfare of the city, but unique and restraint to conformity. Sorry, resistant. You're right, resistant. Resistant to conformity. Thank you, Audrey. Yes, to be loving and cooperative, but also unique and resistant to conformity. Don't conform. Be, be distinct. Be unusual. Eat the foods that you're called to eat, even if that means you eat vegetables only. Don't bow down to their gods, even if that means you get thrown into a furnace, even if that means you get thrown to the lions. Be faithful to God. But while you live here, love them. Cooperate with them. Work with them. Seek the common good of the city. That's an incredibly unique way to live, isn't it? It gives me chills to think about. And this is the way God taught his people to live. Because from this point on, even when they came back to Jerusalem, They were never really, there was a small period of time during the Maccabees, we'll talk about that later, but small period of time where they were sort of self-governing and self-ruling, but for the most part, they were in exile. Even when they were home, they were in exile. And then the Christians, the apostles, used this same kind of language to describe your life in Christ, our life in Christ. Peter would say, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see all of those aspects there? The loving and cooperative, unique and resistant to conformity. <laughs> the kind of life that Peter's telling them to live, right? Be unique, be distinct resist conformity, don't conform to the way of the Gentiles, but love them. Let them see your good works, live honorable lives among them, not separate from them, but among them, separate from them in that you don't do what they do, but not like I'm not getting my hands dirty because you're a bad, dirty person. None of that. That's not the way God's people live as exiles. This is the way God's people live as exiles. The Hebrew writer, writing to encourage his audience, said Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's keeping our eyes on the mountain range. Here we have no lasting city. Babylon wasn't their city. Dallas isn't our city. Dallas, New York, Washington, D.C., Hollywood. I mean, we could try in vain to take it back. But that's always been in vain, hasn't it? That was never the call. The Hebrew writer could have told all of these Jewish Christians, let's take Jerusalem back for Jesus. Never once. He said, let's join Jesus outside of the camp because here we have no lasting city. We're going to love these people. We're going to cooperate with them. We're going to seek their good. But we're also going to recognize that we have no lasting city here. Our city is coming, though. Our city is coming. Praise be to God, our city is coming. The very end of our Bibles ends with this vision that John sees of the city of God coming down for God's people like a bride adorned for her husband. That's what's coming for us. So we don't, we don't have to worry about the fact that I don't fit in here and I feel homeless and it doesn't work and how do I live? And it's so complicated because the culture and me and, and the way to live as a follower of Jesus, it just doesn't work in this culture or this society. Literally join the club. This is a club that's been going on for 1,000 years, 3,000 years, and you're now part of this story living as God's exiles. Christian exiles are to love their neighbors and their place of residence, but to not feel truly at home there. That's the tension in which we have to live. And it is uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable to be an exile love your neighbors, love your place of residence, love Dallas, love New York, love DC, love, uh, well, what else did I say? LA, love these places, love these people, but this is not your home. Here we have no lasting city. Our city, the city we seek is to come. Let's pray. Father, give us the faith to live as exiles, to love our neighbors, to cooperate with them for the common good, to seek the welfare of the cities in which we live, but Father, also to live unique lives that are resistant to to conformity. Help us, Father, to remain faithful in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Help us, Father, to shine as lights because we don't argue or complain, but we live lives that are wholly devoted to you. Father, We struggle sometimes to do that and we've fallen so short and we need your grace and your mercy and your love. And we need you, Father, to help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.